Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. The Leadership Show with Andy Peck. It's my great joy to welcome you to the show that aims to help you use your influence for God. If I asked you whether you are saved by works or saved by faith, you would probably answer with the latter. Most of us can quote those famous verses in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. But what does this actually mean in terms of our understanding of how we relate to God day by day? Well, today's guest has made grace an essential part of his message. It's the theme of a number of his books, and in particular, his latest book, The Grace Message, Is the Gospel Really This Good? And The Grace Message is also the title of his radio phone-in show, which broadcasts across North America. His name is Dr. Andrew Farley, and to quote from the early pages of his book, many people sitting in our church today are getting a lightweight understanding of God's grace. They think it's merely about forgiveness when they fail, and heaven when they die. They don't see the empowerment of God's grace, so they seek to lessen it, temper it, or balance it with something else. They kill their victory over sin and don't even realise it. Well, if you're in any kind of leadership, you'll want to be clear about what grace is and live accordingly. And so I'm excited to be exploring this issue with Andrew on the show today. He's the lead pastor of the Grace Church and associate professor of applied linguistics at Texas Tech University. So welcome, Andrew, to the Leadership Show. Hey, thank you for having me. Great to be here. So I mean, I understand, Andrew, that this grace message came partly because there was a time in your life where you failed to appreciate what grace was really about. Oh, yeah. I was uh, 19 years old and I was on the floor of my apartment and I was begging God for answers. I was saying, God, I, I'm doing everything the church said to do. I'm reading my Bible three and four hours a day. I'm sharing my faith with everybody that I meet, and I'm in church every time the doors are open, uh, but I still don't feel close to you. I don't feel like I'm growing spiritually, so where did I go wrong? And uh, it was not a lightning bolt out of heaven by any means. It was more like uh, 10 years uh, that God was working with me, replacing old thoughts with new thoughts, and at the center of that, was a better understanding of God's grace. Uh, I knew about grace for heaven, but I was certainly uh, miserable in my Christian experience. And so after I began to really understand God's grace uh, for all that it offers, uh, that's when I decided I wanted to help other people too. And that's why I wrote the grace message. So as I hinted at in the introduction, Andrew, uh, you're tackling a central issue uh, for many Christians. And I guess most people listening would think, yeah, I'm saved by grace. Right. But the actual process of walking with Christ sometimes seems to lack grace. Perhaps you could outline what you believe are the ways in which many Christians misunderstand what grace is. Yeah. I mean, for the average person, it seems like uh, grace and mercy are almost the same thing. But 
you know, mercy is when you're driving down the freeway at 100 miles an hour and the police officer pulls you over and says, I've decided not to give you a ticket today. Uh, that's mercy. But if he pulls out a thousand dollar bill and hands it to you as a gift, uh, that's grace. And I think the average Christian also thinks, well, maybe grace is, um, you know, it's like God is a banker canceling your debt uh, or God is a travel agent booking you for heaven. Uh, but God's grace is bigger than all of that. I mean, God's grace means that he's like a heart surgeon taking out your heart of stone and giving you a new heart. So grace is empowering. Grace is equipping. Uh, grace is a lot bigger than we might imagine. So, Andrew, I'm, I'm excited by this conversation because in my work, I've observed that Christians who are serious about discipleship often make the journey with Christ very legalistic. So they believe what you've just said, but they kind of feel like they have to engage in spiritual disciplines and they kind of measure their walk with Christ on how well they're doing with those disciplines, how well they're praying, Bible study, fasting, and all those kind of things, which I'm sure are helpful, but it actually leads to a very exhausting kind of faith. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was the original sin was measuring ourselves by some standard of uh, good and evil. We, we were suckers for the sales pitch of self-improvement. We ate of that fruit. We decided we wanted to know, you know, good from evil. And then God came to us and said, who told you you were naked? Who told you there was something wrong with you? Uh, so we adopted a measure. And then I would just say today, here we are in the body of Christ. We got to be careful because we're adopting a measure. You know, how many times have you been to church lately? Uh, how often have you done your quiet time? How dedicated and committed have you been to the, quote, spiritual disciplines? The reality is that terminology, spiritual disciplines, is not found in the Bible. I can't imagine if I went to my, my earthly father years ago as a child, and said to him, Dad, I really don't want to talk to you, but don't worry, I'm going to discipline myself uh, to talk with you. He writes me a letter from overseas on, when he's on a trip, let's say, and I say, well, you know, Dad, I really don't want to read your letter, but don't you worry, I've committed, I've got an accountability group, and I'm going to be dedicating and committing myself to reading this letter you've written me. And I think that's where really the enemy has deceived us into operating out of have-tos and shoulds and ought-tos uh, rather than want tos. I mean, this this new heart message means we get to live from the heart and give from the heart. Uh, even that sort of freedom doesn't stop when we get out our wallets. Uh, God's given us a new heart so we can truly live in freedom and grace. So, Andrew, you seem very confident about the, the change of heart. And as I was reading through your book uh, and some of the answers you give to people on your phone in, often you're challenging people to think, actually, you've got a new heart. And I think many Christians doubt that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not only do we doubt it, we quote scripture from the Old Testament about it. We tell whole congregations that we have a deceitful and wicked heart, and we think that's humility. Uh, but real humility is saying what God says about you, uh, no more and no less. And when it comes to being born again, uh, what does it mean to be born again? Well, part of that is you got a new heart and you got a new spirit and you got God's spirit living in you. Perhaps Romans 6 is the best uh, description of all of this. Uh, you know, Paul says, we were slaves of sin, uh, but we became obedient from the heart. So what does that tell you about your heart? 
Uh, you've got a new heart and an obedient heart. I mean, this was the new covenant. It was told to us so long ago through prophets that God would give us this new heart and a new human spirit, and he would put his divine spirit living in us forever. So uh, that's the new covenant. And, you know, we've got no business telling Christians that they have a wicked heart because the reality is uh, we're called, you know, Paul says the goal of his instruction is love from a pure heart. How could we ever have that if our heart were not pure? And how could we ever really understand how to live the Christian life if our heart disagreed with it? I mean, imagine a gospel where God says, you're bad, but I need you to live good. You're sinful, but I need you to live righteous. You're wicked, but I need you to live holy. I mean, that would be a recipe for disaster. And unfortunately, a lot of believers are living that disaster uh, because they truly believe that they're just sinners by nature. And the reality is we are saints who sometimes sin. And our new identity really matters. You've got a go-to place at the core of your being. You've got a go-to place in any moment when temptation hits. you got to know I'm dead to sin and I'm alive to my God. This is uh, fascinating stuff, Andrew. Uh, in the UK church, we have uh, the, the mainline church would be the Church of England, obviously many denominations as well. I guess the equivalent of Episcopalian in your in, in the United States. And so classically, confession of sin would be part of the, the service. You confess your sins, and particularly before communion, that kind of thing. Uh, are you saying that's kind of an inappropriate activity, or how would you... Yeah. understand the classic church approach to these kind of issues? Well, certainly it's not a formula for daily cleansing. I think we've misunderstood the finished work of Jesus Christ if we believe that uh, confession at a church service or confession in any way is some sort of ongoing bar of soap uh, where we get uh, cleansed daily. Uh, the reality is Hebrews ten fourteen says, by one offering, God has made us perfect for all time. And that's the truth of our forgiveness. You know, in the Old Testament, uh, they were forgiven repeatedly, endlessly, progressively, year after year at the Day of Atonement. And that was animal blood that accomplished that. And Hebrews tells us how much more has the blood of Jesus cleansed us once for all. And so that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that every Christian is a totally forgiven person once for all. So should we agree with God about sin? Of course, let's agree with God about everything. Uh, should we turn away from sin? Absolutely, every single time, but not to get more forgiven. Uh, let me say it this way. There's plenty of reasons to say no to sin. There's plenty of reasons to turn away from sin. But getting more forgiveness from God is not one of those reasons. Um, we've got all kinds of reasons to say no to sin. If you've got a new heart, if you've got a new spirit, do you want to be forgiven and miserable? I don't. Do you want to be righteous and miserable? I don't. So how about we say no to sin because we don't want to be miserable and we're only fulfilled by Jesus Christ anyway. So how about we just thank God for our forgiveness and then say no to sin because God has the market cornered on fulfillment. Only Jesus will satisfy anyway. Andrew, you have an interesting take on, on the Sermon on the Mount. And I've heard you know, Christian Bible teachers who, some would say, well, it's all too difficult, so we're supposed to be even tried. 
But others say, no, no, no. If you if you do the spiritual disciplines, then you can you can become the kind of person that Jesus was urging his followers to be like, namely people who didn't just not commit adultery, but didn't last, not just not murder, but also didn't get angry. Your take on the Sermon on the Mount is a little different in terms of how you see Jesus using his teaching in that way. Yeah, well, let me be clear. I think Jesus meant every word of what he said. Uh, you know, he said, cut off your hand, uh, pluck out your eye. The Sermon on the Mount goes on to say, be perfect like God. So I think he meant it, uh, but I think it's law-based teaching. I mean, you know, he starts in verse 17 of Matthew 5 by saying, hey, please realize this, not a jot nor a tittle, not any point of the law has passed away. It's still here until heaven and earth are gone. Uh, so last time I checked, heaven and earth are still here, and that means the law is still here. But Jesus wanted them to see how stringent and how impossible the law really is. I mean, amputate your body parts in your fight against sin, and, and no way. I haven't met the Christian yet who's plucked out their eye or cut off their hand. And somebody says, well, that's just hyperbole. It was just exaggeration. So, I mean, at that point, we have to say, okay, was God exaggerating when he urged them to be perfect like God? Was he exaggerating when he told them to get right with their brother before offering their animal sacrifice? I don't know that we can pick and choose and cherry pick through the Sermon on the Mount. I think we better take it at face value because who are we to say Jesus didn't really mean it? And lastly, I would just draw our attention to the simple fact that Judaism is referred to so many times in this sermon. I mean, Jesus says, get right with your brother before you offer your animal sacrifice on an altar. Now, who listening today has been offering animal sacrifices in their backyards? Now, Jesus also says they'll be answerable to the Sanhedrin council. Um, who has been hanging out with the Sanhedrin lately? So this is not a sweet passage for Christian growth. This is before the cross. It's before the resurrection. It's Jesus teaching on the law. He's basically taking Moses and presenting us with Moses 2.0. He's basically showing us that the law is a perfect and impossible standard, and that way we'll realize our need for grace instead. Andrew, you're a lead pastor at um, Grace Church. You, like a lot of church leaders, have a congregation that I'm sure you're urging to live in a godly fashion. How does the grace message impact the kind of things you do and don't do as, as a community? Well, I love that question. I mean, you know, let's sum it up this way. If we're not always begging and pleading and hoping and waiting for God to forgive us more, and if we're not always waking up and trying our best at the Sermon on the Mount because God grades on a curve, we imagine, then how is it that we're motivated to live these godly lives? And I would just say, you know, Titus 2 says the grace of God teaches us to live uprightly and to say no to sin. And I believe that. I mean, Jesus put it this way, whoever is forgiven much loves much. And that would mean that if you're forgiven little, you love little. So I believe that when we realize all that God has done for us through the gospel, that it empowers and inspires us to live uprightly. Um, you're absolutely right. We're saying no to sin here. Uh, here at the Grace Church, we believe that 
a sin will never fulfill us and that we're strangers in this world. We're different than the guy next door. The guy next door is uh, dreaming of new ways to sin every night. And here we are, you and I, talking about how not to sin. Clearly, we're new-hearted, we're different, we're ambassadors, we're aliens. So this identity message and this grace message really does lead people to think differently about themselves and therefore uh, to act differently and, and make new choices. I've found that in my life. I'm seeing that in the lives of real believers here in West Texas and around the world. People who say, I spent my whole life trying and now I'm trusting I spent my whole life trying to achieve, and now I'm receiving. Um, I spent my whole life worried about what I'm doing for God, and now I realize what he's done for me, and my focus has shifted, and my life has been transformed. Well, it's lovely to hear, Andrew, and certainly I think uh, leaders listening will be perhaps making a mental shift in their brains uh, because clearly uh, the exhortation for godliness and sometimes even manipulation is is part of the arsenal of of many church leaders. Let's be honest. And uh, the grace message is actually say you know can can be misunderstood. And I'm sure you've heard this accusation that actually you're being soft on sin. You're not you know you're not making feel people feel bad enough, and and therefore they're going to drift away. Yeah, yeah. So. Who's being soft on sin? The person that says the wages of sin is death, and that's why you need grace instead. Or the person who says, oh, the wages of sin is that God is mad at you for 15 minutes until you confess, and then you're back in. Uh, What is soft on sin? The person who's saying the wages of sin is death, and that's why Jesus paid all the wages for you. Or the person who says, you know what, the wages of sin is that you're out of fellowship for an afternoon until you go witness to somebody or jump through some hoops, and then 20 minutes or an hour later, you're back in with God. I believe the latter is the person who's being soft on sin. They've watered down the wages. Uh, They're no longer saying the wages of sin is death. They're saying the wages of sin is that God is ticked off for a portion of time until you complete the formula and get back in his good graces. So what we're saying here at the grace message is sin is so serious that it deserves death every single time. But let's look at what Jesus did. He died so that you would never have to. He took the wages in full. So there are no wages left. I mean, are there earthly consequences? Of course. Again, if you're going 100 miles an hour down the freeway, there's an earthly consequence to that, most likely. You know, there are earthly consequences when you cheat on your spouse. There are earthly consequences when you tell lies and have to spend your life looking over your shoulder. There are earthly consequences, and there's a lack of fulfillment and contentment in your life because you're grieving and quenching the Spirit. But let's be clear, the Spirit doesn't leave you. God says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Nobody can snatch you out of my hand. Even when you're faithless, I remain faithful to you. Nothing separates you from the love of Christ. So let's not water down the grace of God, and let's not water down his forgiveness. He said, I've removed your sins as far as the east is from the west. I keep no record of your wrongs. I remember them no more. They're gone. So that's what we need to celebrate along with Christ, that it is finished. 
At the same time, we can say, and the resurrection has given me a new identity. I'm born of God. I'm born of his spirit. I don't want to sin anymore. Yes, I get the thoughts. Yes, I get nasty thoughts, perverted thoughts, lustful thoughts, gossipy thoughts, selfish thoughts, uh, deceitful thoughts. I get those thoughts, but they're not coming from me. They're coming from a tempter, the power of sin. And when I realize that, I can say I'm dead to sin and I'm alive to God, and that makes all the difference. Andrew, from what you are saying, it, it seems to me that maybe some of the approaches that happened certainly in the UK and the US as well, um, which focus on counseling and going into ourselves and trying to understand our behavior patterns and all that are probably a little redundant for you by and large. Would that be correct? Yeah, I, I, I certainly think, look, if we've been through pain, if we've been through abuse, we can certainly seek counsel and process all of that, work through that. But when it comes to us and God, we got to know that we're not supposed to be engaging in morbid introspection to try to get right and stay right. I mean, God knows us and he's given us a new past. I mean, our new past is that we've been crucified, buried and raised with Jesus and we're a new creation. So even though, uh, you know, people talk about generational sins uh, today a lot, and I just want to shake them at that point and say, generational sins, show me that in the New Testament because I'm part of a new generation, a holy generation. I've been raised and seated with Christ. My identity is in him, not in my great-great-grandfather and what he committed. Uh, so we've got to realize not only are we forgiven, but we're righteous. And not only are we going to heaven, but right here, right now, we're part of a new lineage and a new heritage and a new family. And we've got a new family line, so we don't need to be engaging in navel gazing anymore, uh, we can fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Well, amen to that. So Andrew, as you preach this message and as you respond to online and um, phone-ins, I'm guessing that there will be some who, who don't like what you're saying at all. <laughs> yeah. um, how do you respond? Well, that's okay. I've gotten used to that over 30 <laughs> years. Uh, I don't have to have anybody like me uh, to be candid with you. If you know who you are in Christ, uh, whether 10,000 people agree with you or 10 people or, or nobody <laughs> agrees with you, I think at the end of the day, you just have to ask, what did Jesus do on that cross and did it work? Uh, did he die for some of your sins? Did he give you partial peace with God? Did he fulfill only part of the law? I mean, these are the doctrines that are being pushed today, and they're sad. And honestly, I think they're sick and pitiful, and uh, they make grace look puny. Um, and uh, it, they're pathetic because they insult the finished work of Christ. And at the end of the day, are we going to believe that we're partially forgiven or that Jesus actually did it and it's finished? Are, are we going to believe that Jesus fulfilled some of the law or that he actually fulfilled all of the law? Are we going to believe that? You know, we're in partial peace with God or that he took every sin away and we have perfect peace with him. Are we going to call God a liar when he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light and you will find rest for your soul? I believe connection with Christ is permanent and easy and light and awesome because he just gave it to us as a gift and we never, ever lose that 
incredible connection. It's unshakable and unbreakable. People talk about, you know, greasy grace. And I say, what are you climbing up a fire pole? Uh, what's greasy about it? Uh, you know, they say it's cheap grace. Uh, well, it costs Jesus his life and it's free to us. Uh, so how is it cheap? If it costs Jesus everything and it's a free gift for all of us in him, then where's the cheap part coming in? Uh, people call it hyper grace. I say, well, I'm hyper about it. How about you? Uh, it makes me hyper to think about the grace of God, not to mention the prefix hyper comes up three times in the New Testament uh, to, dis to describe God's grace. Uh, three times the apostles say that God's grace is hyper. It's in uh, incredible abundance. It's in excess. It's over the top. Uh, so, it, you know, people are throwing stones at God's grace, uh, and yet I have found that it does nothing but free me up to truly be obedient from the heart and really mean it and to live an upright life in dependency on Jesus. And once you see that, my friend, there's no going back. Uh, final question, Andrew. You you mentioned that you took over sort of 10 years or so to work things through. Were there particular writers that helped you or books of the Bible that helped you? Yeah, along the way, certainly. I mean, you probably know quite well Andrew Murray. Uh, some classic writings by Andrew Murray were helpful. Um, you know, uh, we've got Watchman Nee out of China. Some of his writings were, were helpful to me. But I have to say, you know, even though I had a nice eclectic mix of authors who were encouraging, um, it was the book of Hebrews that really revolutionized my understanding. You know, I, under, I, I believe that's one of the least studied uh, New Testament letters today. People think it's uh, irrelevant or it's just about Old Testament concepts or something. But in the book of Hebrews, we discover something we don't hear very often, that Christians are not being forgiven progressively. We're not being forgiven little by little. It's not like paying off your mortgage or paying off your car. Uh, Christians are totally forgiven people, past, present, and future. Uh, Hebrews also says that we're part of a new covenant, and it's better than the old. It's founded on better promises, and that's the core of what I'm proclaiming in this book, The Grace Message. I'm saying, welcome to the new, out with the old, in with the new. There's a radical new way to think uh, because of the cross and resurrection, and it revolutionizes everything. Well, Andrew, there are people listening to this from around the world, but particularly, obviously, the UK. Uh, so people can get a copy online or via your website. Yes. So uh, the book is called The Grace Message. Is the gospel really this good? And yeah, you can get the grace message on Amazon, at Barnes and Noble, wherever books are sold around the world, uh, you'll find the grace message. Well, thank you so much for uh, this thrilling conversation and for focusing on such an important task that we all have. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. I loved it. That was my stimulating conversation with Andrew Farley. His book certainly made me think and uh, rejoice in grace and enjoy all that we have in Jesus. I recall the words of Dallas Willard, that grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. And so followers of Jesus, we have a, a joyful response to grace as we look to live in his ways, not out of works, not basing our efforts on works, but out of joy that we get to walk in his ways and to know his joy in our lives as we 
seek to live obediently to him. So do buy uh, Andrew's book and see how you find it and allow him to stimulate your thinking too. This is Andy Peck, thanking you for your company. Looking forward to next time. Bye for now. The Leadership Show with Andy Peck. To get in touch, email andy.peck at premier.org.uk.